Hi everyone, I'm Wes Unruh, part of the team at the Empower Lab. I'm a digital media guy who helps put together this podcast. I wanted to take a moment to introduce today's podcast episode. As you are about to hear, this interview with Dr. Aisha Metzger was initially recorded for the Psychologist podcast by Gil and Julia Strait, uh, released on their podcast earlier this year. Gil and Julia are both licensed psychologists in Texas and licensed specialists in school psychology, uh, and I strongly suggest seeking out their podcast and subscribing by going to thepsychologistspodcast.com and following the links there to subscribe. Today's interview is wide-ranging and covers how to discuss race with children, what to do as a clinician when working with clients who have different beliefs and cultural practices, and how the work of the Empower Lab underscores the research on racial trauma, racial stressors, and the importance of racial socialization in offsetting these issues in the community. Without any further ado, I present a re-podcast, which was initially recorded for the Psychologist Podcast, Episode 17. Enjoy! Episode 17 of the Psychologist Podcast. We might even make it to 20. I think that's probably what I said when I was 17, too. Like, I might even make it to 20. (laughs) And here I am. Tomorrow I'm going to turn 38, so there you go. Dr. Aisha Metzger is our guest today. She is one of those people who, when I went to graduate school, she and I were in a lot of the same classes together, and she just feels like one of those people that you've known forever. She makes you feel comfortable. She makes you feel positive. Um, She's one of the coolest people I've ever met. She comes in and out of my social media feed once in a while. And it's always because she's doing something friggin' amazing. And it's one of those things where you're like, Oh, I want to be happy for you, but how are you so successful? (laughs) But I'm super happy for her. Um, you're going to hear a lot about her today and about the work that she's doing. The work that she's doing is around socialization, racial socialization specifically and racial trauma and community outreach. You know, when we were interviewing her, Gil and I have a lot of privilege, right? Because of our skin color, because of our socioeconomic status, because of our education. And it really hit me the whole time that we were talking how very much privilege we have even as parents because we don't have to have certain conversations with our kids uh, about fearing for their lives, for example, when they get pulled over or, you know, trying to be super polite to police officers so that they don't get hurt or killed. And this topic has become increasingly, you know, important in, in the news and everything. But for me and Gil, you'll hear us talk about when we first had kids watching our friends who were people of color versus us who had white privilege and the different ways we had to f- figure out how to talk to our kids about race and what's going on in the United States right now um, has just been a really big topic of conversation in our home uh, for the past five years. And I know that in other people's families, it's probably had to have been a conversation for a lot longer than the past five years, which we'll talk about. But as I was driving home today and getting ready to edit this episode, I heard on the news that the officers and the paramedics who were involved in the death of Elijah McLean two years ago in 2019 have been indicted by a grand jury. So they're going to be charged with felony counts. And so I think that this is a tough thing to listen to if you are one of those people like me who has privilege, but 
I also think it's one of the most important conversations that I've had in a long time. Dr. Metzger is truly an expert on trauma and specifically on racial trauma. She has the lived experience. She has the book knowledge and she has the heart for it, man. She is out there, you know, <laughs> boots on the ground, doing stuff, making things happen. So I am so honored to have Aisha on today. And it's amazing to me what she's doing. And without further ado, here is Dr. Metzger. Hello, and welcome back to the Psychologist Podcast. Today, we have Dr. Aisha Metzger. She is a first-generation American from Atlanta, Georgia, by way of Sierra Leone, West Africa. Dr. Metzger is a licensed clinical psychologist, founder and director of the Empower Lab, owner of Cultural Concepts, LLC, a certified therapist in trauma-focused cognitive behavior therapy, or TFCBT, and she is the mental health expert for Salone Health, an organization dedicated to improving the health of Sierra Leoneans at home and abroad. Dr. Metzger is currently assistant professor of clinical community psychology at Georgia State University. And I was just joking with her before, like she must have more time in the day than 24 hours because this is a lot of things to do. So, <laughs> so welcome, Aisha. Thank you for taking time out to come to our podcast, especially since we are always late. <laughs> uh, thanks for having me. That was an awesome intro. I really appreciate that. Thanks. I I always have a couple words where I'm like, and 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 yeah. I thought it was going to be Sierra Leone, but it was really like a simple word that I got stuck on. So flawlessly <laughs> <laughs> executed. Thank you, thank you, ma'am. I'm looking into a career in the you know narrating documentaries about sharks. So. There we go. <laughs> um, Gil, you want to ask the origin story question for our superhero today? Yeah. I mean, I mean, a from from hearing that bio, you, you are involved in a lot of things, and and, and, Am I a and more than in, more than involved, you're leading those things. Um, okay. So, yeah. So can you just tell us how you got how you got started, um, and really your journey into psychology, and, and and kind of maybe what led you to develop some of these programs that you're leading, and 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 all. Wow! 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 So. I've been asked, you know, what got me into psychology quite a few times, but I appreciate that you guys called it my origin story. I just yeah. watched Cruella for the first time last night. So I'm going to try to do it in, in that fashion. Oh, wait, um, is it pretty good? I haven't seen it yet, but oh yeah. Cruella is so good. Oh. It's so good. It's so good. And you okay. have to keep those at home, but you guys should watch it. As yeah, characters. we'll watch it on our own. It's a good movie. Because when so, you watch it with them, like you can't pay attention. So yes, do right. it in that style for sure. Yeah. So um, so origin story in that regard is that I'll say that uh, my family were refugees from a civil war in Sierra Leone. So you can imagine us escaping the civil war and coming here. Um, and certainly if I have a superpower now, it would be in helping people heal from traumatic experiences, much like um some of those interpersonal stressors that my families were going through at the time um if i'm growing up right and you're seeing me as that young superhero uh certainly i will say um in addition to those interpersonal stressors once we you know um i started getting bused to school from where i grew up in the hood to a more affluent area so i'll say that i was introduced then to racial stressors. So I do tell people that I met, like I had my first relationships with white people 
in elementary school, right? So this mm. would be that scene in the comic or that scene in the movie. Yeah. Where, boom, pow, like I'm an African booty scratcher. <laughs> what is discrimination, right? <laughs> so uh, certainly that would be um, what I would say I'm working towards or that my superpowers are fighting against, right? The villains of interpersonal stressors as well as racial stressors. And now, right, so you just introduced me as, as assistant professor at Georgia State University. So I just transferred to Georgia State University. So now I do definitely, I've talked about myself recently as like the Black Panther and I want to come and put a spaceship in the middle of the hood. So I am building a community center right mm -hmm. now. And that's what? something that really, yeah, excites me. In the, right, so in the Empower Lab, we do research, but we also do community-based participatory kind of outreach and activism work and I do want the lab to be a place where youth and families in the community can come so think Black Panther I love that thanks for the intro oh that's um, awesome and that's kind of my why and that's kind of a thousand foot view of of where I am right now with um come on I'll put a cape on I accept I know where's your awesome. cape at no that's okay you can have whatever outfit you want uh and you're from Atlanta isn't Georgia State in Atlanta are you back at home are you back in your hometown don't make me scream right now. Hometown, home university. This is where I graduated from. Oh, good. I thought you were going to say, no, it's in Athens. No, I was, I was gonna say, say this is G State, so we have a chance. It's, it's Atlanta, <laughs> right? Right. Yes. It's in the middle of downtown. So I am, I'm going home and I'm really excited about it. Oh, so you're just like, just recently about to go back there. Oh, this is, I got my office keys last Wednesday. Yes. Oh my God. So okay, I was so at where UGA. Were you? I was okay. at UGA. You so were in Athens. Athens. Right, yeah. exactly. So I'm just going down the street. I still have two students at UGA. I was just on campus on Friday. So it is very, very, very current, but I'm so excited about that. That is so cool. Congrats going, you know, going back home, the prodigal yeah. daughter. Right. <laughs> tell, tell us about the community center. So what like what's the goal of the community center that you're trying to build? Yeah, yeah. So um it is in the Empower Lab. So the Empower Lab is my kind of home base for the work that I do. It's engaging minorities in prevention, outreach, wellness, education, and research. Um, so research is a large pillar of what we do. We do community-based participatory research, but we also do outreach. We also do awareness events in terms of spreading awareness about community-based organizations that exist to help heal from interpersonal and racial trauma. We do a awareness around racial trauma. So we have a public health messaging campaign right now. Hey, hashtag racial trauma is real and racism hurts. Um, and we're spreading awareness about how to be an effective ally, how to spot the signs of racial trauma, how to cope with racial trauma. And so we want, right, at Georgia State University for these youth who are engaging in our research, who are utilizing our care package that we have. It's an online program for racial healing. We want them to be able to come into the Empower Lab to hang out, to, you know, utilize our care package, go through the programs online to talk to us, um, my lab members, my staff, my students, the undergrads are super cool. And they do, right, love doing this outreach. And we do want this to be a place where people in our community can come as well. Wait a minute, you're, you're a professor, but you're actually helping people? 
Oh my goodness. <laughs> I'm just Isn't it just, that's so it cool though. Can you explain? We had someone um who was it that was also community psych. Uh I'm totally blank. Oh, Darren Woodleaf a couple weeks ago. Um, but could you for those of oh, us like Darren? Yes. Yeah, so if there if listeners, some of our listeners I think are like psychology students, some are other psychologists, some are parents, just you know, my mom. Could you explain what community psychology like how is that different from just clinical or child or yeah, yeah, yeah. So I like to think about it as reaching a, a larger portion of the population or really going beneath kind of clinically, we think of the tip of the iceberg, right? So we know that we see maybe 2% of the population come in and they're, they're meeting clinical diagnoses for whatever it is, right? PTSD in my case, um, ADHD in your case, right? But we do know that a larger portion of the population suffers from problems or symptoms related to whether that be, in my case, interpersonal trauma or racial trauma, or in your case, behavioral problems, parenting, anything like that. Um, so community psychology, in, in my view, is capturing that portion of the population that doesn't meet clinical significance or clinical problems, um, but also can benefit from the skills, from the psychoeducation, from the awareness, from the advocacy that's associated with the work that we do. So I am in at Georgia State and by training. So my PhD is in clinical community psychology. So my work is definitely in bridging the two. So the, the clinical population, as well as just those of us walking around in our day-to-day our -day lives. Can I ask how you found commu clinical community psychology? Like when you were like applying to grad school and you were a young undergrad, what was your yeah, grad? Yeah. yeah, I think I was just really lucky. So Georgia State um, has a clinical program. They have a community program, but in their kind of training philosophy, they don't make you choose. So even as an undergrad, it was said that you can do research, you can do clinical work, you can do teaching, you can have it all. And I've always been kind of that person who wants to eat from the buffet, but also sees the benefit, right, of of targeting a population from more precise as well as general or public health um, approaches. So I just say really early on, it's kind of as soon as I found out what psychology was, I was in a clinical community program and I was able to say, oh, okay, I choose both. But it, it was a part of, of a choice that a lot of people don't get to make and that I, I feel really, um, really grateful for having that opportunity. But you're right, right? And that a lot of people don't know that community psychology does exist. I Yeah, I didn't know till you know, going to school right next to you guys in the other program, in the school psych program, and then y'all were, in, and I'd say, oh, that's a clinical, and they don't, no, it's com clinical community, like, oh, okay, right. well, what, what the hell is that? <laughs> yeah, because it's so rare, it is, it is very It rare. is, but it's so cool, I mean, just learning about all y'all's research and everything, and the outreach, and I kind of joke, but I think in y'all's program, too, at South Carolina, at least, like, I remember a lot of the labs in that program having outreach, and like, it wasn't just only about kind of input coming into the research. It was about things going out. And giving back, absolutely. It, 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 it's, it's a, at least my understanding is it's very focused on, and you mentioned this too, prevention. And if you're thinking of the public health model, a lot of the, the primary, the primary level of service of what are we going, what, what are we giving to the entire community to help prevent the development of mental health issues? Or there's already some kind of baseline risk. What can we do to mitigate further further right. issues or crises is that 
somewhat yeah. correct or no that's absolutely correct and right so i deal with black youth and we do know right when you use the word risk right so mm -hmm. they're already baseline exposed to these racial stressors so right when you talk about public health that's to say that the vast majority of them across the public right are experiencing these stressors and can have these health outcomes that are related to that so absolutely it is about prevention but our also early intervention right if we think about kind of epidemiology and the fact that the lar the vast majority of them are exposed to these stressors. So, I mean, minoritized, like racially minoritized youth are getting exposed to discrimination. And you, and I guess you kind of mentioned this early in your opening that for you is when you moved into a certain school system and you were around a bunch of white people for the first time, that that is when that kind of came about. Yeah, yeah. So for me, right, I think I was really lucky in that I was in my neighborhood back home. My dad had already established an organization for Sierra Leoneans in our Atlanta community. So me being bused and getting this additional exposure to a totally new population, um, I do think certainly was introducing me to more resources, more extracurricular activities, but also, yes, a, a, just a whole new type of stressors that I was having to overcome. And it's not from, so I gave the example earlier about like African booty scratchers. So that's to talk about interpersonal relationships, but also I was also almost put in special ed, right? So that's thinking about systemic issues that come up. And right, so I had a dad who came to school and advocated for me and talked about my vocabulary acquisition and said, no, she's actually code switching between three different languages, right? Right. So they thought you had a language learning disorder, like a, a learning disorder language. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, oh, my gosh. Yep. And right. So that is what really introduced me not only to kind of those interpersonal interactions, but the systemic issues. Now, looking back, I can say, oh, that was a 504 meeting. And I have to think about, right, what about other kids who are in these positions? What if they don't have parents who are able to or who know how to serve as advocates for them? Then we have, right, school psychologists and we have clinical psychologists who we can train, right, to look out for these different kind of cultural differences and racial stressors as they might occur for youth in the systems can you talk about sorry i mean sorry. we're like racing to ask you questions because we both have a list of questions and we're like she's gonna answer my question <laughs> okay. julia is always ask... faster she's always faster at getting her well, depending on i stutter a whether you come from a clinical or a community <laughs> perspective you could either call that impulsivity or advantageous uh non-delay of gratification so Certainly. um what is it called i, I think you made that last part up <laughs> No, like we have all the research on, you know, trauma and how, you know, you just get it now, not later. Um, adaptive calibration, uh, uh, what is it? Oh, the adaptive calibration model, but it, it, yeah. it, gets, it gets to the idea of li living fast. Okay. So that's, you know, you know impulsive, whatever. But I ask questions Love quickly because I, anyway, that was a very big diversion. So, but, okay, Gil has Gil has been writing this grant, I'm going to be honest with you, for the past, like, I don't know, year or two on cultural. So he does all this MI stuff, very like tier two, you know, very much like the at risk level, not like most of my kids are, you know, like you said, clinical kind of above this cutoff, which I hate that distinction. But, um, and he recently has been talking about all this stuff. And the other day he was giving me his spiel about his grant and he said minoritized youth. And I was like, I wouldn't say that. What is that? What does that mean? So can you guys talk about that? Because that was a totally yeah. new term to me. And I was like, what does that mean? I've not heard that before. So what is minoritized youth? And is it okay to say? 
Yeah, so it is okay to say, I tend to say marginalized, but if you are talking about numbers and you are talking about youth in the population, then we do say minoritized, right? So that is to say that they're not the minority by choice. That's just, that's to put it on the system as opposed to the individual. Um, and I do think that it's an emerging language that's used. I'm, I'm totally interested in this grant that you're writing. Um, only because yes, yeah, so so that that specific specificity with your language, I think, is really important in terms of the way that you're thinking about the population and the way that um, you're able to help the population as well. And when I say help the population, that is to work with them to enable them and empower them to help themselves. Whereas um, I think ethnic minority youth, I think the ways that um, or even the ways that we have traditionally thought about this language takes a lot of the responsibility off of systems and puts them on to right, the minoritized groups without um, emphasizing the strengths that they do have. Okay, Gil, you win. Uh, well, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know if it was a winning, but I mean, just to give you a little background on on the proposal. I mean, what we're yeah. what we're hoping to do is so my expertise has been in motivational interviewing, but also uh, mentoring models in, in, in schools and specifically um, trying to redefine how we mentor youth because older approaches, the developmental model really produces inconsistent effects. This idea that we just put a kid with an adult, that relationship on its own, if it's long, is going to produce positive outcomes. And we know there are some outcomes when those relationships are long, enduring, but in schools, they aren't. And we also have shortages of mental health providers at the same time in schools. And what we're trying to do with our instrumental mentoring model is take things like motivational interviewing and like cognitive behavioral therapy and give mentors the resources and like a manualized curriculum that they can use to actually implement those types of skill based sessions in their mentoring relationships when they meet with kids. And we call it instrumental mentoring. Really, my colleague, Dr. Samuel McQuillan led a bunch of this. All that to say is we have these like programs that are, we have pretty good evidence that they're pretty effective in like improving grades and mental health outcomes. And oftentimes we're, we're working with minoritized youth and still we have pretty good impacts, but we've been trying to figure out how can we in increase the effectiveness of these programs on academic and social emotional outcomes. And as we started to explore the literature, I started learning more about how often we neglect potential protective factors that are unique, again, to minoritized youth. Yeah. And, yeah. and, um, and that led me to learn about like the phenomenological variant of ecological systems theory, which is the biggest, just wants to say biggest that. theory just I know, but, but about- I mean, for those right. of y'all who are like me. Right. Oh, you knew. I was like, why'd you put that in the show notes? Like, what if, she, like, are you quizzing her? Right. No, no, but she, her story was explained, was giving an yeah, example of that, yeah. that, that, um, like minority students, kids, adults, they experience racism and discrimination. And then I started learning about cultural socialization as a protective factor. And with that, I want to stop because I want to hear like, like I'm I'm novice other than I'm like I've learned this I'm like I want to take these concepts and try to apply them into our own mentoring models to make these things more effective for yeah, you. Yeah, as you said that. So uh, my first my first thought was and even before I thought about racial or cultural socialization, my first thought 
because are these community mentors, peer mentors, or trained professional mentors? Because I think that each of those could have different types of impact and each of those would have different strengths that they would be bringing to minoritized youth specifically. Right. Yeah, right, right now we're trying to look at local school-based volunteers or paraprofessionals. So those the, a lot of the paraprofessionals that might already be implementing like a reading or academic intervention, but see if we could get them to serve as a mentor and provide um, some of these social emotional type things that then that we're going to kind of put some context and some other other, I think, intervention options around. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, how about this? How about we talk about racial and cultural socialization? And I bet you're going to get some ideas because as you were talking, I had some thoughts about um, how that could and that being uh, kind of racial socialization could um, be integrated into the mentoring. Kind yeah, of Gil secretly set this up to like succubus yeah. knowledge Cause away. Yeah, because the grant is about trying to develop this. I mean, this literally about developing curriculum manuals that would let us do I should, I just cultural to to you. or racial right. civilization. Before our listeners though, can you give us like a background, like, cause I, I'm kind of worried that maybe we're now just talking about terms that maybe- Yeah, y'all are code switching don't. for sure. Y'all just dropped into like academies and um, I think right. much of our audience will understand it, but a lot of them will be like, what? And then at the end, let's do our origin story because we keep okay. talking as if we're familiar and people don't know how familiar we are. Oh yeah, okay. Um, so let's do that at the end. <laughs> but right, so kind of overview into what racial socialization is. Yes, and maybe um, if you want to mention what racial, I mean, you kept mentioning racial trauma earlier. Um, yeah. And I don't know if that add, yeah, like, will add some context. I don't. Yeah. Which one do you want first? <laughs> that's, yeah, it's a lot of different things. Well, how would you, okay, let's say you're walking into a room with, you know, two white people <clears throat> who really don't know, you know, like where do oh, you that, start? Right. No, I get it. I where get do it. you so start? Would, like, I would actually start with racial stress and racial trauma. Okay. And yeah. Then start I would there. talk about how we overcome those. Right, 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 yes. right. Ooh, I like how you guys are setting this up. So, hey, two white people. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, We're white. <laughs> if anyone didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, but yeah, like starting uh, so, from that. Yeah. Right. So I'll, I'll talk about, a, uh, I'll talk about this from the perspective as, as a black person. Right. So we're going to know that, right. Racial. Oh my God, you're black. I didn't know. Oh that. my goodness. <laughs> yes, I, uh, right. Sorry, I had to make that uh, joke. I had to, okay. I'm over it. Right. So that's to say that other minoritized groups will have similar experiences, but, um, I'm going to focus on these. So racial stressors are experienced by nine out of 10 people, adults and kids as young as eight are going to say that they're experiencing five or six racial stressors in one day. So I see eyebrows raising like what sort of stressors are those that you're experiencing five or six in a day. So those can range from direct instances. So like when I said getting called an African booty scratcher, or that can be like if I'm walking beside you and you're clutching your purse, or if I get followed around a store, or those are direct experiences. So microaggressions are other racial stressors. So those are more uh, kind of ambiguous experiences that might undermine a person's personhood or nationality or belongingness. So reaching towards my hair, right? Without asking, petting me, right? Treating me like a pet as opposed to a human. 
saying I'm well-spoken for a black person. That's a compliment, but it's also an insult to say, what do you, what does that mean about how black people speak? Right. So those are microaggressions that are more ambiguous. I gave direct examples and then there are vicarious examples of racial stressors. So those are things like getting on Facebook and seeing George Floyd get murdered. Those are things like walking down your neighborhood and seeing one black guy getting pulled over by nine cop cars right so we we know that that right and i'm i'm actually if you hear me beating my heart we know that right that that gives physical as well as emotional as well as even now behavioral responses where people say that they're intervening on these situations because they're fearful for either themselves or the lives of someone else um, so those are racial stressors those are i just gave three or four examples, but those are common everyday frequent occurrences of stressors that could be potentially traumatic. And, and the five to six a day, I, I like I know the eyebrows raised, but that was, uh, I mean, that's shocking. I mean, I, right. I think there's already are the hope is people already can acknowledge that this is an experience um, right. for, for black people and, and other minorities, right? And then like, I, at least I kind of felt like I was in that acknowledgement, but then to think five to six a day, yep. not just like five to six in a year, every single day, right? like our adults, our kids are, are experiencing these. Right. And the, so a lot of the work that I do is with, um, I mentioned interpersonal stressors as well. So when we talk about things like child abuse, when we talk about things like domestic violence, we can see how some of these instances are less frequent, but severely traumatic, right? So when we put that in the experience of a microaggression, right? So if you can imagine getting punched unexpectedly across the face five or six times a day, right? Of course, now you're going to be on guard, you're going to be more startled or easily startled, you're going to be hyper vigilant, right? So that's to say um, that your sense of safety around in the case of being punched, right? So that's physical safety. But in the case of racial stressors, your sense of safety around just being a black person existing in your skin in society, then becomes something that is related to stress. If you're in a ethnically minoritized situation, or if you are around law enforcement, or if you are being followed around a store. That's what I was going to ask, except for I was muted, but I was going to say, how many a day? Five to six, because I was trying to take notes and five to six. Uh, and I think it was right. Most of the people that I've encountered, the reason I asked you to start it there is because most people I know who are not understanding this or, you know, and I don't count myself among like the most, you know, whatever, but people I know who are resistant to, to understanding this, it starts there. Like people are starting at this is what you have to do to help. And it's like, but, but there's no even acknowledgement that that is an experience or that, that that is an experience that has demonstrable, demonstrable impact, you know, like, okay, so what, you know, like you hear, I mean, you, I don't, hopefully you don't hear that a lot, but sometimes I will hear the people in my community that I see say, oh, you know, whatever that means, you know, okay, so I stub my toe five times, and, you know, and it, there, there's some really shocking um, responses, I think, just, just to that very first step of, is this even an experience that people have? Yes. And like, Ooh, does I love it lead so to? What. Yeah, I love the <laughs> so know? what, right? So the so what is to say, right? As you're experiencing this in your day-to-day -day lives, what, what is the impact 
Why can't you just keep going on in your life, right? So that is to now challenge individuals, much less researchers, right, who can collect quantitative and qualitative data and physiological data, which we have now that shows, right, that my life expectancy is shortened because of these racial stressors and my increase in heart rate unexpectedly, however many times a day. That my cortisol and my stress levels are increasing because of these ambiguous situations that I'm experiencing just because of my race, that I'm having to question my identity, I'm having to question my sensitivity, right? Because people are going to give it back to you. No, you're just being sensitive. No, you're not experiencing what you think you're experiencing, right? So this um, rumination, right? So this confusion, this hopelessness, right? When you try to speak up for yourself and you're ridiculed or you're disciplined unfairly, this leads to hopelessness. This leads to anger. If someone tells you you're not perceiving reality in the way that you think you are. So say you go to a, a counselor at school and they say, oh no, it's not that that person was being racist. Maybe it's some other excuse. So now you're questioning your own reality, you're questioning your own ability to speak up for yourself, you're questioning the system and people who you think are supposed to protect you, right? So that leads to hopelessness, sadness, anger, stomach aches, headaches, school truancy, all sorts of, 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 of right? This is, quanti- this is quantifiable. I mean, like our researchers right. have shown this, right? The, yes. the more someone experiences discrimination... Yes. The more the, the more likely there are negative outcomes on related to academics, career, mental health. Right. And that discrimination in itself leads to these outcomes, right? So mm-hmm. that black kids are disciplined more severely and mm-hmm. unfairly in schools, that they are suspended more, expelled more, written up more, sent to counselors more, put in special ed more, evaluated mm-hmm. less. In the most right? restrictive environments. Right. As well in special ed too, which we think right. about it as being a place to help, but it's not helping if kids are missing out on what everyone else is getting. Right. Oh, everyone else is getting right. So that is that is coming from my privileged perspective as someone who was able to be bused to that area. Right. So if we think about like redlining and we think about zones that kids are in. A lot of kids aren't even getting those resources or I say resources, so resource officers, so school counselors, right? So extracurricular activities, a lot of kids by nature of where they live and the environments that they grow up to, these are stressors um, or additional risks that they're facing or uh, resources that they don't have access to that also lead to these same outcomes. So what do we do? Right. So what do we do? <laughs> okay. Now we believe you. No, I'm just <laughs> no, but wait, let me, let me circle back a little bit. I'm, and I just want to pick at this a minute. Um, cause I, you know, uh, I work in some peripherally and some trauma stuff. And I know that we have some overlap there. And, and, you know, this always re- reminds me of the talk that we have around ACEs. And, you know, um, one thing that always pissed me off is that, um, as someone who greatly values neuropsychology and neuroimaging and all those things I do, But what makes me matter and matter as a clinician and just a person in the world is that people don't listen until it's physical. So you were mentioned, and I even said the word demonstrable, right? Like there's demonstrable quantitative effects. And yes, we need that for like NIH grants and we need to be able to demonstrate that. Um, But like, what part does lived experience play? You know, like um, if someone just tells me they're traumatized, like 
I know it's not enough maybe for a grant, but have you, what do you think about that? Like, oh, it has to somehow be uh, like with the ACEs studies, it wasn't recognized that like trauma was that important or that it was even having this effect until Kaiser Permanente was like, oh, well, it affects like rates of heart disease and the, the economic bottom line, you know? And so it seems like that's what it's taken for people study, studying racial trauma to say like, okay, look, it's physical. Like, what is that? What is that? Yeah, that that is the prove it, right? That is the nature of racism to say, right, you're invisible until you prove your worth or prove your value or prove the impact of this problem. Um, and that is a hurdle that we as researchers, as individuals who experience racism have to overcome by nature of racism, right? So it is a, a never ending cycle to where you have to, um, be able to describe the emotional effects, the behavioral effects, the um, physical effects in the moment, right? So how can you imagine someone saying <laughs> something that's completely ambiguous? How'd you get into this honors class? And you having to get the vocabulary to say, right, this is making my heart beat fast and this is making me clench my jaws and now my fists are tightened because you're, you're somehow giving me a compliment but also insulting my intelligence and, right? So absolutely that is a, a burden, that is a nature of racism, that is a part of the problem that we can't even get funding to study, to prevent, to research racism without experiencing racism. <laughs> so yeah, so yeah, even us as researchers, right? I do treatment research and I have to make sure that I add something biological in there, that I add some sort of, right, mental health outcome, that I talk about a disparity in a way that it makes sense to funding agencies. Otherwise, the question is, first of all, prove it. And second of all, so what? What's the impact of that? And then, all right, now we'll treat it. Yeah, that's frustrating to me. <laughs> but just because you're trying, it seems like um, the onus is on you, who already is, you know, in a way having the bigger burden just by experiencing it. Then you're putting the onus on you to explain it. And I'm saying you like personally, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, yeah. and then as a researcher on top of that, you also have to explain it. I'm just thinking of, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of parallels, like it's like in, in autism or trauma or things like that, where it's like you've got a bunch of researchers who kind of started the, the standards of saying, well, you have to have a physiological measure in your study, um, who, who didn't experience, you know, that is what our kind of Western white, what do you call it, WASPy, weird, whatever acronym you want to use, science, you know, the, the, the ins and outs of science and NHA, like, was kind of founded from the beginning on this model of, you know, quote, disability, all that stuff, and so it must be just infuriating to say, like, no, you know, not only do I have to prove it, but I have to try and explain something to you who never has and never will yeah. understand, like, you know, like, I will never understand what it's like to be in your shoes, and you, uh, sorry, I'm just getting, I think I'm getting, like, empathically frustrated, but, like, yeah, you can't, I mean, how can you even explain that to me? If I say something to you, and you're, like, that's offensive, like, I can try to intellectually understand it, but yeah, I, I'm not going to have the gut reaction that you do. You know, like, I'm not going to be like, oh, oh, okay. And unless like, I don't know. Well, I guess that gets to the next part. So what do you do about that? Like, oh, I love it. I love <laughs> it. So I'm going to use you to get to the next part because you said you can two use me. that I love. You said I'm infuriated and I'm frustrated. I love that because those 
if I was more articulate, would be the two kind of emotions that I expressed in response to racism, right? So as we experience racism, as we get frustrated and mad and upset and angry, what do we do with that? And how do we as individuals deal with that? As researchers, right, we're going to know how we deal with that. But in the day-to-day, how do we as individuals deal with that? We deal with that as Black people through a process called racial socialization. So racial socialization is how we as Black people navigate the stressors associated with being Black. So that is to say that usually when I talk about this, um, I'll talk about socialization. So that's to say you guys are raising kids. Right now you are chasing them around the house like crazy people. Don't put your finger in that socket. You're going to get shocked. Don't touch that stove. Oh my God, it's hot. Um, Don't beat up your brother, right? That's not nice, right? You're socializing them to stay safe, to learn the rules of society. You go for a walk, look both ways before you cross the street, right? You're teaching them how to survive. As Black parents, we do that, but we also socialize our kids about how to survive as ethnic and racial minorities, right? So we say, you get pulled over by the police, you put your hands at 10 and two. We say, you go to a sleepover with all your white classmates, don't walk around the house by yourself because if something comes up missing, they're gonna think it's you. We say, if you try to take up for yourself in class and your teacher says you're being non-compliant, tell your school counselor. This is how you navigate society. This is how you navigate logging on to Facebook and seeing another black person get murdered. Now we're teaching our kids how to unplug and talk to safe people, right? Now we as parents where all parents are talking to their kids about how pretty their hair is and how smart they are. We as parents are having to say, yes, your hair is pretty, even if someone else tells you it's not. Yes, you're watching Disney Channel and you're seeing all these white kids. Here are some black kids who you can look up to as well. We're supplementing a lack of representation. We're making up for negative representation. When they're reading American history books in school, we're giving them black history books, right? So we are educating our kids in a way that they are now able to combat negative messaging or negative history in in class when they read about slavery as immigration. They're able to say, no, it's not really what it was. When they take critical race theory out of our classrooms, us as parents are able to teach our kids about, right, what systems are in place that are leading to some of these disparities and differences that they're seeing so that they're not internalizing that to say, I'm lazy, I'm less intelligent, I'm dangerous, Black people are this, that the media or history books or news might say, right? We're giving them accurate information about themselves. We're teaching them how we've overcome these struggles. And that is what allows them to raise their hand in class, even though their teacher's not calling on them. That's what allows them to pay attention and persist academically, even if someone says, why are you in this honors class, right? Racial socialization is what gives them the values and what allows them to check in with their own values when other people around them might otherwise emphasize values that they don't have. So, so, so I'm, I'm going to try to recap kind of what what I heard there. 
Yeah. Um, and, and I'm going to, in, in doing so, I'm probably giving you more of the kind of the textbook like concepts, but I heard positive messaging. One yeah. of the big things, positive messaging about one's own race, ethnicity, cultural background. Um, so those are, when we talk overcome. about socialization, those are racial pride or cultural pride messages. Keep going. I'll okay. give you. I'll give you the racial socialization term when you give me the yes. Okay. Term. Okay. <laughs> excellent. And then there's the preparation for bias. Oh, period. Yeah. Right. Racial that, bias. Right. <laughs> okay. Was, so you got right. the racial socialization terms too. Yes. Right. He yeah, wants yeah. to impress you. No, oh, but, I'm impressed. I'm but, impressed. <laughs> right. He's and trying then, really hard. And, and then I mean, there is the also acknowledgement of like mistrust because if if you've been burned by a system. Or people, or even a worldview, yeah, you're gonna mistrust them. Yeah, you're gonna Is mistrust that, what, that system. And I, I feel like um, our graduate program was amazing, but I do feel like one of the areas that I was not as confident in is you know diversity cultural things and and they tried and we took classes about it and we checked the box but i will say probably the only thing i really remember from any of our clinical classes was that concept of healthy cultural paranoia or whatever and I'm, and it was like oh well if you have a client you know who is actually paranoid about you know these systems you know if they're from uh i'm going to try the word minoritized group then I would, like i would say i think we should get rid of the paranoia word i don't well, know well i was going to say yeah. i was going to ask you guys cuz that's mistrust, from mistrust but it mistrust. is a healthy mistrust yeah yeah that's what like what is it uh i think in 2008 or something that was what, what was in our book right so but yeah. i guess i'm asking too like can y'all update that for me what that's the only thing i remember explicitly being taught because i think one of the frustrations in school was okay you gave us all these like theories and things but like what do we actually do when we have someone in front of us who's of a different background and I was joking, I even in the notes we were writing beforehand, I was like, I rewrote this one question for you. It was like, how do non-minority clinicians or how do white clinicians, like how do we interface, you know, without yeah. further traumatizing people? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess that's a lot in one thing, but, but no, yeah, can y'all update so, that? Yeah, so what I'll say is that um, Gil's absolutely right in that, right, paranoia is pathologized in a way that puts mm -hmm. again the onus on the person to say that I am now um, suspicious of something without due cause. Mistrust on the other hand is one that says I don't trust you and there's a reason for that historically and systemically right so black people Native Americans other minoritized groups are going to have very specific historical um, medical um, systemic reasons that they don't trust um i'll just call it the system right so that could be from the tuskegee experiments all the way down to uh well currently we'll say george floyd and law enforcement systems but this is like rodney king right these are ongoing examples that we have about why we don't trust the system this is like children being kidnapped and put into social services right these are ongoing current examples that we have on social media right that we're hashtagging and fighting for the rights of people um, that does lead to mistrust um, so what i'll say about that is that as providers in the system our job is to validate to normalize to acknowledge that mistrust and then to say all right right how are you receiving me as a white person 
let me let you know that I see myself as an ally or as an advocate or someone who acknowledges that system and who is here to help you navigate that system, right? So this is my relationship with law enforcement. This is my relationship with DSS. If I ever make a report, I'll let you know beforehand. I'll tell them that you're working with me. They're less likely to then. If there is an investigation, I'll make sure that it's not ambiguous. I'll make sure that you know why they're coming and asking you questions. It is for the benefit of your child, right? So to have those open and honest conversations which is what we know, right? In, in interpersonal relationships, what makes someone trust you more? Being vulnerable, being open, being honest. So as medical providers, as mental health practitioners, as community-based service members, as teachers, anyone within the system, law enforcement, right? Our job now is to acknowledge that system, to acknowledge that mistrust, right? And then to say, this is how I'm working to overcome it. To say, yeah, I'm a part of this system, right? But my clients will say, oh, you run the ops. Yeah, I'm in opposition to the system, right? You can identify yourself and say, I'm an ally. I'm an advocate. I'm filling the blank, right? But it's to say, I recognize that very real reality. I'm not here to say, no, it didn't happen. Or maybe this was their intention or, right? To lead you to further question your experience. Um, and it's also our job, right, systemically, as we're working with families to know, right, that because that mistrust exists, right, that we're dealing with families that are not less engaged, but maybe those that have additional barriers. And those barriers are, right, if we're talking about racial stressors, those barriers aren't just, I don't trust you. It's, I don't trust you. You're only open from nine to five. You only have in-person services. There's not telehealth. You don't accept Medicaid. You don't offer bus tokens. There are so many systemic issues. And when I get there, all of y'all are white. None of y'all talk to me about what it's like to be a black caregiver. None of you are addressing these racial stressors, right? So the issues definitely are interpersonal, but they're also racial. They're also systemic. They're also historical. And I think that that's what our job is as researchers to to outline that and to normalize and validate those experiences so that, right, we can say, all right, you guys have been dealing with this since history started. What do you do to get over it? Because they do, yeah, right? right? <laughs> yeah. To get over it as in get over that hurdle, right. to right. get over that right. barrier, right? Not to- Well, I'm, I'm thinking about too, as you're talking, uh, and P.S., like one of the one of the ways that I found you after all these years is I had to take a refresher for my TFCB certification and you were in the video. So by the way, everyone, if you take the TFCB T-Web 2.0 course, which I make all our students take, um, Aisha is the clinician in the video. So I was like, holy shit, I know that girl. Um, I was like, dang, our programs must have been pretty good. She's in that video. Anyway, but yeah. it makes me think about, I swear this is relevant. Uh, when I worked, I worked in Memphis on my postdoc at a place, uh, we were a grant agency that was only, um, it was part of the Bowling Center for Developmental Disabilities, but we only evaluated and treated kids who were also in the DCS system in Tennessee. And um, we had lots of families who didn't understand that relationship and they would come for their one day assessment and they yep. would think they don't want to tell us anything because they thought we were the ones that were going to take the kid. Yep. And so we, we eventually would have to have these like kind of psychoeducation sessions at the beginning. Hey, look, like we have a grant with DCS. We are not DCS workers. 
um, or whatever you call it in your state, you know, but like we don't have the power to take your kids away. We're assessing them for developmental problems, not to see whether they've been beaten, you know, like yep. we're not investigators. So yeah, it just reminds me of the kind of yes. healthy, healthy mistrust of that. Like, yeah. even the, you know, the parents I'm glad like, you guys corrected course. Um, <laughs> yeah. what, what I don't, well, what discourages me is where people recognize that and then do not correct course. Right. Uh, so then they yeah. say, oh, well, these people are paranoid and they don't know how to engage with it clarify your relationship with the system and then maybe they won't be so mistrusting yeah maybe well, it, it sounds like you're keeping secrets because you're yeah well, it took me a while to get like oh all i have to do is say like oh oh don't worry like i actually don't even have the power to do that like we're not going to take your kid today you know what this is exactly. not what this is about um yeah. and and just even in the trauma world i know i should know it's like clarifying that as a therapist or even as an evaluator which gets very tricky i am not here to investigate your case like like my priority is this child's well-being, not whether or not something happened or, you know, like that gets, I feel like, you know, Absolutely. anyway, so yeah. I love that. And oh, yeah. right. And as a white clinician, I'm not here to call you a bad parent. Right. Uh, I'm yeah. here to figure out what you are doing and to supplement that with what evidence shows us works. Right. Mm -hmm. Tell me what kinds of conversations you're having around discipline. Tell me what kinds of conversation you're having around timeout, bedtimes, curfews, racial stressors, right? And then how are you overcoming these? Which of these are prominent? Black families are going to say, yeah, it's talking back, but it's also wanting to go protest right so we're having conversations about peacefully protesting right we're having conversations about how to channel your anger we're having conversations around who is a district attorney and what power do they have and how many times do i need to call them or how many people do i need to sign this petition so that they'll arrest or open a case against the police officers who shot brianna taylor right so talking about what do you do if you get on the Facebook and one of your good, good friends is saying Mike Brown deserved to have been shot and killed in the street? How do you have a conversation with that person? How do you either repair that boundary, repair that relationship, or decide with good conscience that this isn't a person you want to be friends with? How do you make that decision? Does this get at the last kind of process? which I don't think I said in my summary, but you had kind of mentioned it earlier, but egalitarianism. Ah, yes. Is that, so, right. or, or, or so is that, or, 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 Yes, egalitarianism, if we're gonna run down the um, racial socialization constructs, egalitarianism, extended family involvement is also another one that we uh. left um, So that is to say, right, it's not just mommy and daddy and brother and sister, it's also auntie and uncle and godmama and play cousin and a candy lady and, whoever it is in your neighborhood, right? Who can serve as a source of socialization, as empowerment, as an identity check, as a sanity check, as um, a safe space, right? Against racial stressors. So then yes, I think we got them all. Achievement messaging, racial barriers, cultural mistrust, racial pride, egalitarian, and, 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 and family involvement. And you originally kind of mentioned like parents oftentimes do this. Yeah, there is yeah. work on looking at schools doing this, like yes. in, in the school environment. Yes. And and I'm and this is this is what was this when I heard this 
this is kind of what made me start thinking about it from our treatment design of stuff that we're trying to do but there is a causal yeah. link yeah okay Should, like right showing and, and i know you know that this is i guess for our listeners but yeah that, he's got his professor that, that, that racial socialization <laughs> yeah. decreases that link between discrimination and those experiences and those events and the negative outcomes all of the outcomes and, absolutely. And, and moreover it improves positive racial identity development and when when and, and when minoritized youth have a strong identity and it's positive, then we see those improved academic mental health outcomes, which I, I know maybe that is maybe the more Eurocentric, like that's what we wanna see those big changes, but those are helpful. I mean, if you do well academically, career success, same with mental health outcomes, but we have to- And those to are value-based, right? If you right? talk to black families, if you talk to black kids like about their values, those are up there. Academics, right. achievement, future employment, self-esteem, pride in myself, right? These are things that, yes, we want to see in research, but these are things that we know make a healthy kid, right? Like these are the things that we want to see. And so there's I, research I, on that, that there's not really a lot of difference, like, like between like Caucasian families and African-American families and even like Hispanic Latinx, academics is high up there. Now yeah. they like how- yeah, like yeah. now maybe how we perceive the school system might vary for some, for some, depending on again experience. I mean, what have you experienced? Yeah, that's a prominent message in racial socialization is that you're gonna have to work twice as hard to get half as far. You're gonna have to raise your hand twice as much to get called on. You're gonna have to right put in twice as much work on the group project to get the same recognition or acknowledgement. Um, and it is right to say that we have those values, right? A lot of us growing up, it's a running joke that, listen, you're gonna be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer, and that's all you got, right? Or hopefully you got some athletic abilities, but like you're going to school to learn, <laughs> you're going to get, right, an education. And these are the barriers that you're gonna have to overcome if you're a part of that system. Otherwise, there are different barriers that are about getting resources, that are about extracurricular activities, right? That are about um, the systems that you're within. But certainly in terms of what we can do, we know that we gotta do twice as much. Can I ask too, so when you talk about the racial socialization process that parents go through, which again, just like a, anecdotally, you know, part of our privilege as parents is like, we didn't have to think about, you know, we have to think about the like safety of the light bulb and whatever. And now we're like, oh crap. Yeah, we do have to figure out how to talk about race. But honestly, like 10 years ago, I don't think many white families were even thinking about that. And I remember when I was pregnant with my first child was when all, well, not, not starting, right. But like the media coverage was escalating um, of all the police shootings. And, you know, it was just getting it was escalating. And I remember uh, at the time, one of our mutual friends was also pregnant with this, her child and she had already had one and me and her were messaging. And I remember thinking, uh, maybe I should ask her about like all the stuff that's going on, you know? And then I was so scared because I was like, you know, I, I don't know. I felt like I had an epiphany talking to her while we were both pregnant because as this is going on, I've got all these fears and anxieties about being a parent and, you know, raising this kid and do I breastfeed or not? And then it just hit me of like, wow. And she has that plus she's watching the news every, you know, like she's got to think about all these other things that I don't even have to think about. Like what, <laughs> I mean, what does that, you know, say? But I guess the question in there is 
is racial socialization practices like in communities and parenting is that something that's more started as a description or a prescription like is this something people are already doing or is this something that you're like oh we're going to teach you how to do it better or you know and, and I guess that goes for both you know black families but also white families of you know I've been looking up like lists what books am I supposed to be reading which books not to read you know how do I talk about this with my daughter like when she says stuff yeah. about people's skin so yeah, yeah is it is it like a description of things that you're already doing or is it are there so, right ways to do um, it so I'll have to give you two different answers in that um what i'll say about black families is that right we've been having to do this since the beginning of time so it's certainly a descriptive thing it's certainly in research right describe what you're doing let's talk about the benefits we're able to quantify and qualify it um and that's been for decades since we've been doing this research um and clinically, right, what that means is that we're able now to take the already existing research and treatments that we have, so cognitive behavioral therapies, TFCBT, and then say, all right, let's integrate what we know is happening and what we know works. So that's a great place to be. Um, and I said that I'm going to have to answer this in two different ways because... I think that the research on white family has shown that the tides are turning, that families are going from kind of colorblind mentalities to uh, colorblind and avoidant mentality. So the avoidant mentality was one that says, I recognize it, but to have the conversation will make it worse. So they kind of avoid it to um, not worsen it. Colorblind is to say, I don't see those differences. These problems don't exist. Everyone should be treated equally. And that might be right for a good cause. But what we know about racism work is that it doesn't help to solve the problem. I think that now what the literature shows is that white parents are also and other uh, majority parents are also starting to have the conversations to try to do the work as well. So the literature now is going to how to be a good ally, how to be a non-optical ally, how to talk to your kids in a way that fosters cultural awareness, that fosters intergroup unity, that fosters, we call them immersion experiences. So you immerse yourself with the communities that are otherwise minoritized or marginalized in order to get that exposure that will combat right, the one percenters that the media shows, so to show the diversity, to show the differences, to celebrate through interactions and through relationships, those experiences, and how to use your position of power to overcome instances of discrimination when you see them. How do you speak up? How do you acknowledge someone when they're not being acknowledged? How do you bring them into a group of play, right? So how to act as an ally, how to overcome racism. And now, right, we're doing the work and we're doing research to figure out what that looks like as those tides are turning and to quantify that. And I'm hopeful and I think that the next step of that, right, is to integrate that into treatments as well. Um, currently, right now, so even in the work that I'm doing, right, so we have a racial trauma guide and our guide has resources about how to talk about racism, how to identify racial stressors, how to um, kind of monitor yourself and check in on your symptoms as related to racial stressors. But we also, just in keeping up with the research and keeping up with the turning of times, have 
a ton of resources about how to be a good ally and how to talk about race and white families because that work is emerging as well. And I think that that's a really good place to be, right? So we're not only healing from racism, but we're helping to prevent it and we're helping to stop it. Is We're helping to prevent the negative outcomes when we experience it and we're helping to stop it from occurring as well. It strikes me too that uh, when even when I was asking that question, this idea of like privilege being like that I don't even have to acknowledge it until it's in my face, right? Like, yeah, I guess for white parents, it almost has to be prescriptive, you know, like it's not something I would have done otherwise, honestly, right? So, but like you were saying, for survival purposes, like you, your community has been doing this for a long time or the black, you know, and so uh, that strikes me as well. Like, oh no, I have to be intentional about it to be a good, you know, ally slash advocate slash whatever, because if I just rely on my own, like, reactions or whatever I don't experience it so I'm never going to develop a automatic natural way of talking like I don't know I just feel like and we it's have to also be to say right that you're you're never going to experience the rich, richness of having black friends and black that, co-workers yeah. and black right like that Ooh. is to say right that that your life too will be stunted by not having the celebration, the experience like of, of not having racism, right? <laughs> racism hurts everybody. It doesn't just hurt us, right? Yes. It also hurts the system. It also hurts our experiences in school. It also keeps us from really being like that life that we all imagine, right? That life is one that requires racism to be eradicated, truly, for us to be happy and to celebrate life and to utilize our individual strengths and our collective strengths in a way that would propel society. That seriously, like, gave me, like, (laughs) just, just, but you talking about, because I think in, uh, this goes back to the optical ally thing, right, like, which I'm assuming you mean just like, oh, look, I, on Twitter, I, like, donated to the Black Artist Fund, (laughs) Yeah. Um, you know, um, (laughs) Yeah. But which is great, but also, you know, put your money where your mouth is or whatever, or your actions. Um, and money, and money, and money. But yeah, like uh, just the idea that I think we give in, especially in mental health and in academia, we get a lot of lip service to the whole like strengths based approach and what are the positive psychology. But what you said is so authentic and genuine. I'm like, no, I'm not trying to like pull out these, oh, look at this. This could be good for you. This is an incentive. Like, no, you, we know for a fact that like, it's enriching when we have diverse perspectives. Absolutely. Like this is a legitimate, again, demonstrable benefit if we want to prove it or whatever. There is research to show that like when we have diverse members of community, everyone thrives. And so right. it's not, um, I don't know, makes me think of, I was watching well, that. We have a television thing. show with a, a, a writer's table of diverse writers. It's a better show than yes. that only has old white men. Like, come on, we know uh, yes. That- Diversity makes life better, period. I was watching that Gina Davis thing on, uh, she had a a documentary recently on Netflix about women in in film and and they were talking about that. She's like, you know, it's it's good for everyone economically, like psychologically. You you know, uh, I think she was talking about this guy on FX like made a big effort at hiring all these women and they're like, oh my God. And then he won all these awards, like the shows got better, you know? So it's not like, oh, we're just gonna, you know, okay, we'll tolerate this or whatever. Like, truly, (laughs) the the party is better. The kickout is better. (laughs) Life is better. Everything is better when it's all of us, (laughs) truly. Right. Uh, And I think that, right, that's a part of the work that, that we're doing on a very basic level is to say, right, on the one hand, everything is better without it, but yeah, this also hurts and it sucks. So stop, right? That is (laughs) very simple. Um, But it's work that as researchers, we have to 
attached to cortisol and hypertension and suicidality and dropout rates in high school. And they're all associated. Yeah. I, I'm kind of like, I'm taking all this in and I'm in thinking like in my social network, which I mean, I'm not, it's not huge, but, but social, like, like if I was to think about everybody that I've ever known, you know, there are a lot of people that have different views than me, which is, which is okay. And I think about my own worldview, how I was raised and my own kind of like development of where I'm at now. And I would say, you know, like I was kind of raised in that colorblindness, yeah. avoidant kind of continuum. You know, I'm from South Carolina, Columbia, and I, I know you you lived in Columbia, South Carolina, you know, yeah. and so that was, that was the, I mean, I was raised in that kind of worldview. Part of it, I think at the time was like, I mean, I had learned so much about like the civil rights movement, um, desegregation and how big of a like good thing, but it was always kind of framed like, look, we did it, we're done. It's over. I, 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 like, look, we're, we're, we all intermingle in the schools. Everybody now is equal, mm, like, my goodness. Like, you know, yeah. like, the, and that, so now let's just work on this. And, and, and yeah. I will say like, like when I think about my parents who we have di some different views on, um, but they were a part of the generation that support, like supported the civil rights movement at the time. Now, fast forward, how, like, how do we get people to come around that aren't aren't just academics or people to really get it like i hate to use the word woke or wake to wake up but to see that it does matter that we do need to acknowledge each other's differences that we do need to acknowledge that discrimination still happens um and, and how can we do that and i know we are starting to use it with social media obviously like as i guess julia was mentioning with seeing like police shootings like it's now we see it more so it's more physical it has always been there i know yeah. for me my experiences were like in graduate school and going out to bennettsville south carolina and doing an after school program there and seeing the difference between my experience in middle school and these kids experiences and that going down working in dallas like i started having those immersive experiences you mentioned too but for yeah. people who aren't going to leave leave their phones and go immerse and basically oh, you're going to say not going to leave Columbia, <laughs> but they're also, but they're also going to get, they're also going to get information that they are reactive to. Yeah. Because I mean, because they feel like, Oh, well then I have to say my ancestors are bad or that I'm because of, of the, or it's the system I believe in. And like, how do we shake that people's attitudes without causing reactance, because oftentimes when people see something they get reactive to it and it could either because it's too scary and so therefore it can't be real. Yeah. Um, or it couldn't happen to me or I'm just so entrenched in what I've learned. Yeah. I, and, and by me saying now that, oh, you know what, this is bad. That means I have to admit that stuff I did in the past was bad. Yeah. I don't know. I love that. And I, well, I also like that you asked that question because you do MI, right? So that is to say, how do you move someone from pre-contemplation and I don't want to have this conversation, right? To being motivated towards change. I would say by asking a lot of questions, right? 
So what do you think about what's going on nowadays? How do you think that's different from how things used to be? What sorts of problems do you see with society? What sorts of strengths do you see in society, right? What do you think we could do better, right? So just being open-minded and curious, I think that um, oftentimes when we know the solution and we know the problem, right? We know the problem is racism. We know the problem is systemic. We know, right? We want to give the answer and give the solution where we could just take a step back and say, all right, mom, all right, dad, right? What are your thoughts about today? And what are your thoughts about how things are changing? And oftentimes just that conversation is what opens up more and the recognition and what opens up, ooh, what I love about MI is that we're able to say, ooh, do you mind if I tell you something that I heard recently? Right. Or especially if this is your mom and dad, the work for you is easy, right? Hey, mom and dad, I have a podcast. Have you guys ever listened listen. to one of my podcast episodes? If not, here's a great episode yeah. that you should listen to and then show them me. It's a, right? it's a great supplement for Tucker Carlson. Sorry, right. mom and dad. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, mom and dad. We do try to be apolitical on here. So I'm sorry for anybody if I'm just... This, right? Well, right I think it's not just parents, though. Like I said, I mean, I right. work in a very small... Uh, well, the, the place where my clinic is, is on kind of a, a major interstate. And so you get a big mix of people, but a big pocket of them are, uh, I'll, I'll just tell you, there's a billboard across from our practice that says, uh, buy a tractor, literally, this is literal, literal. If you buy a tractor this month, you get a Bible, a gun, and what is it? I don't know. It's something else. Very. It's, it was like well, buy a tractor. something stereotypical. Oh, right. American flag. You get a Ooh, Bible and great, an American good, flag. Great. And so you know, but this is like the the world I'm living in. And so I'm saying that not to say like uh, mm. I was actually surprised when I started working in this area. Coming from you know, even though I went to grad school in Carolina, everything. I think we as as academics and just like helping professionals, we tend to be surrounded by people that think sort of sort of like us. And so it was a little shocking to me to have these families come in and you know have families say things like well, we're going to send her to private school because, you know, the other ones are being overrun. And I was like, oh my God, what year is it? <laughs> you know, so it's not just older people. It definitely is not. Yeah, um, anyway, so just to take a little heat off the parents, not just parents. It's, well, I guess I just talked about parents, but they're younger. Yeah, <laughs> so. but even right, you, you also talked about clinicians. So, right, so mm -hmm. how do we as clinicians um, kind of balance responding to a, a client by saying, you know, there actually are some really good public schools. If you're interested in looking at them, they're free and affordable um, <laughs> and they do provide right diversity and the ability to celebrate within group differences and between, right. And to make friends of all different races and just leave it at that. Right. Right. So knowing when to pick our battles, knowing which battles are worth picking, knowing how to, ask a question rather than assert your thought, which is tough, right? So what makes you think that? Especially as professors. <laughs> right? You know, that's wrong. I was just like, so what's wrong with, how are they becoming overrun? Rodent? Right, like curiosity. I love that, that like, right? oh, right. yeah, tell me about that. I We had some, right. well, we want to get political. We had some similar things to come up over the last year and a half about you know, just various things, some, some more on the race side, but, but things coming up. And, and that was kind of the consensus among our consultation group was like, well, can we just ask questions and be curious and say like, oh, oh yeah. like without being sarcastic, but like, oh, tell, no, I haven't heard no, about truly that. truly exploring you know? Socratic questioning, right? Yeah. Like, no, I, I didn't, I'm not sure I understand what you're saying. You know, like, can you, can you be more specific? Like what, what is it that you're worried about? You know, like, so that's great. 
Yeah, and just being curious, providing education when you can, right? Um, I do think that we're in a very unique position to where we have um, authority as well as, right, like we're saying, we have our own personal beliefs. Um, but also we're educators, right? So I think that a part of our responsibility is to provide that education. It might be saying, hey, do you, here's something that I found that you might find interesting. You can read outside of session, right? We talked about it earlier. Don't want to take up any session time, but just giving mm. some of these resources to caregivers. Yeah. And, and, and really, if you find it valuable right if it's a personal value of yours to work against racism right if you're feeling those reactions come up in your own body when you're hearing those things and it sounds like you are giving it right back to them because otherwise what you're going to do is you're going to go home you're going to talk to Gil and you're going to ruminate and it's going to be on your spirit I just uh, I yeah. love just giving it right back to people. what do you mean by that yeah yeah right or just having my arsenal ready of tip sheets and websites and here's what you can listen to here's what you that's they're on my website right here's something you could read here's a great podcast here's a book yeah whatever it is right mom and dad here's me have this <laughs> conversation yeah if nothing else you love me right why don't you listen to me yeah right so just yeah. finding finding your in um and that's asking questions and, and, and truly being curious because you're right that some of these preconceptions, some of these values even are based on a way of thinking, are based on instinct, are based on how you were raised, and people don't question them. And it, it, a lot of times people will say, you know what, thank you, I haven't really thought about that at the end of a conversation, right? And, and these are things that I just say off of instinct, but I haven't really been challenged in that way, or no one's ever right. thought enough to ask me that question. Yeah. Um, and then and and mainstream society influenced these too. It's not just like how our parents raised us. I mean, this, right. is, these are, this is the main, like we are all products of that mainstream right. messaging that right. we had in elementary school right versus you know what i know what we could do like now and and so i, I mean i i kind of say that too i i don't know who listened uh, so, uh my guess is a lot of people that listen to our podcast would probably be like shaking their heads yeah yeah but if there are people that i'm friends with that are listening to this again that might have a different view i i kind of like to say acknowledging that there's a problem or that we might have have had racist discriminatory actions right whether intentionally or unintentionally in the past or maybe even now even now like for like like even now i worry about doing it myself like being right. like doing something and i might unintentionally at some point sure say something that's discriminatory yeah. and and i think i think if we could come to from a place of that admitting that there is a problem behavior that doesn't mean you are internally bad either for 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 white people like admitting that right. you've done sure. like some like like my family's done racist things i'm like sh sure there were slave owners in my family lineage if, if i look at it i'm not proud of that does that mean like i don't know like it's this wrestling of how do you acknowledge that that was wrong but still also have your own like okay this is still my family like lineage and I can learn from their mistakes, but grow and be a better person. I think that's the framework at, at, that I kind of see, but a lot of people might not, they feel like if I, I admit this, I think what this, you're saying though is necessary so, for any change. I mean, if you think about mental health in general, right? Like I'm thinking about like depression. If you think it's just cause you're a bad person and you're a depressed person, then there's no room for change. 
And so I think like, I don't know, I don't know how that relates, but I'm just thinking about like, I would think with, just from my experience of like being a white person and experiencing those things you're talking about, like, I'm afraid of saying something, whatever, like, yeah, but if I stand, if I tie my identity to like, well, I'm not racist and I'm not a bad person, um, that's, di that's different from, oh, like my actions or like Brene Brown talks about, right? Like my actions could be kind of wrong and bad, but that doesn't make me a bad person. Only then can you change because you, you can't, you can't change if you've completely identified and internalized, like, I don't know. I, I think I'm kind of- And I like, I like how, how Gil described it as, right? Yeah, sure, it could be family. Yeah, sure, it could be overt conversations that you've had or overheard, but it also could just be watching TV and going to school and reading history books and seeing how people are depicted, right? So that's to say, recognize the problem. You don't have to internalize the problem, but you do have to work against the problem, right? It's to say- right. yeah, Like identifying it as such. Right. And, and, and there can be, and I think that that's where we get into the kind of positive psychology, the empowering work, where you recognize that, where you accept that, where you wear that too, as a part of your identity, right? To say that we have come this far, right? Used to be racist, used to have these ideas, used to think in this way, unbeknownst to even myself, but now recognize that and then actively working against that. I think that, right, even when we think about survivor's mentality, right, to, to say I'm no longer a victim, but I recognize that this did happen and I'm using that now to help other people, to help myself, to be better and stronger because of it, it's the same thing, right? Um, to say, yes, I come from this background, but I'm leaving a different legacy and I'm doing work against that. Um, I think works from empowering in, in any of those kind of perspectives. All right. Well, I should just realize we've been talking for like almost, oh my gosh, an hour and a half. Um, but, oh. and it, we could actually do like a whole series on this, but I will say that you actually oh, have a podcast where you do <laughs> talk about this. So, uh, so we, you know, uh, we don't want to like uh, mansplain your whole podcast, but uh, this has been a, a good seed, I think, for people who want to know more. Where can they go? You mentioned your, we will link your DrAishaMetzger.com, which I read the racial trauma gu guide last night and I was like, oh, um, this is great, right? So, but again, yeah. so, uh, but for people who want to read that or who want to listen to you more about this stuff, since you're obviously very knowledgeable, you have the experience lived and professional, uh, where, where should they find you? Um, I, I would say that that's the most central location. So DrAishaMetzger.com does have my podcast on there. You can keep up with our most recent episodes. Like you said, our racial trauma guide is on there. Um, that's more so for caregivers, individuals who want to serve as allies, um, people who have clients who might be interested in utilizing um, the guide to help heal from racial stressors. We have that on drishametzker.com as well as a care package um, for racial healing, which is more user guided. That's more targeted towards teens and youth in our community to where they're able to um, receive some psychoeducation around racial stress, around racial socialization, and again, around the cognitive and behavioral strategies that we utilize in our clinical practice. We make them very um, user-friendly um, and very, I would say, approachable for teens to use. So all of those, I would say, you can go to DrAishaMetzger.com for, um, and Instagram.com, I would say, is another place. Instagram.com slash The Empower Lab. So most of our work is out of The Empower Lab. 
Um, and that's on all social media as well. And, and Julia, will put, Julia will put that in the liner notes. Yeah, sorry. You too. probably heard me typing. I forgot to mute. But what's the podcast called? Black and Empowered. Oh, perfect. Okay. Oh, nice. Yes. All right. So the Empowerment Lab at Instagram. Okay. Empower and, Lab. E-M-P-O-W-E-R oh. Lab at that's on insta and all okay. social media and that's about it i appreciate you guys yeah, th- th- thank you thank you for coming on and oh wait 90 second origin story we yes i forgot doctoral students at the university <laughs> of south carolina at the same time i'm gonna give my version of it just because i think i was telling my boyfriend last night you and i were the two last single people in the department and we used to joke forever about how (laughs) we were the old maids in the department and julia (laughs) left me and got married and had two kids and i'm still the last single person oh julia yeah but you know it's a trade like look at your cv man i mean come on <laughs> and that's hilarious because one of our arguments I had, I said, I don't want my tombstone to say here lies a great academic. Oh, I know, I know. I have struggled with this all my life. I still do. That's all I talk about in therapy. I can't do it all. How can I do it yeah, all? Yeah, listen, you're but... doing a great job at what you do and <laughs> your priorities are right in that that man right there and those two babies are number one. So keep They're doing cool. it. And all right. this is great. Look at what you're doing whole podcast now this is the, you know it does it does at the end of the day like uh, you kind of reference it but all the things i actually enjoy and give meaning are these things that don't have anything to do with uh, money or cvs so no you know cares. keep doing what you're doing and oh yeah. we didn't get much into the community center but definitely on your webpage i bet you there's stuff about the community center that you're building too oh because it hasn't started and that's just me dreaming about being um the black panther so <laughs> on that you can just go to research and it's under the empower lab and you'll be able okay. to see all the stuff we're doing there cool i well now i have a new way to stalk you uh because uh, i was on your instagram but yeah, um yes yeah. yeah, so we're so excited and like you said i i <laughs> i always think of grad school with i should like every class we had like me and her looking at each other laughing about something like yeah like the, I don't know what it was even just like the lady has a made a stupid joke that could be like sexual or like yeah, you or know, racist. A racist. Right? Yes, yes. So many classes were looking at each other like, did he just say we that? Are reality check. Yes. That was our <laughs> life together. Like did he say that? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Columbia, South Carolina. Oh. <laughs> well, at least, hey, at least they took the Confederate flag down like after we were already they, there. Right. Yeah, that was <laughs> in the two thousands. But when we talk about legacy guilt, so right, you were talking about your family and how other people's families, right? You don't want to hold on to that legacy. Look at the legacy that we're starting for South Carolina. We're doing this work. Now people are going to know, right? These are two graduates of that program that now have podcasts that are doing anti-racist work. So it's true. Excellent. It's happening. It's happening. It's all happening. Yeah. All right, my dear. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. One step at a I, I want to, after we close this, I want to ask you a, a couple things just for like a minute, if you could stick around. Oh, yeah. he's trying to get free work. Not free. Uh, nothing free. Nothing free. I love it. I so, love it. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. This is, this was awesome. This was so much fun. Thank you for listening to this special episode. Join us in 2022 for more from the Black and Empowered podcast. And be sure to follow us on social media at the Empower Lab on Twitter and Instagram. For now, this is Wes Unruh wishing all of you a happy new year from all of us at the lab.